Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. William Kent Kruger is the author of The River We Remember, a novel. Raised in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon, William Kent Kruger who goes by Kent, attended Stanford University before being kicked out for radical activities. After that, he logged timber, worked construction, tried his hand at freelance journalism, and eventually ended up researching child development at the University of Minnesota. He has been married for 50 years to a marvelous woman who is a retired attorney. He makes his home in St. Paul, a city he loves dearly. Ordinary Grace, his standalone novel published in 2013, received the Edgar Award given by the Mystery Writers of America in recognition for the best novel published that year. The companion novel, This Tender Land, was published in September 2019 and spent nearly six months on the New York Times bestseller list. 
His work has received a number of awards, including the Minnesota Book Award, the Loft McKnight Fiction Award, the Anthony Award, the Barry Award, the Dillis Award, and the Friends of American Writers Prize. His last 11 novels were all New York Times bestsellers. Welcome, Kent. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The River We Remember, a novel. (laughs) A pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. I have to say this impressed my mother the most of probably any podcast I've done. She is your biggest fan ever. This Tenderland is literally her favorite book. And she's like, no, I can't believe it. You're talking to him. So yeah. Would you give her my best? I will. I will give her your best. (laughs) I will make sure she listens. (laughs) Actually, speaking of listening, I I listened to part of this book on audiobook, which was really wonderful. I had this long Central Park walk and I like listened to the, I got right into the feel of it. It was, it was wonderful. And then read the rest on paper. So um, kudos to the audiobook team as well. Yeah, you know, I haven't had a chance to listen to the audio version. I listened to the audition tape, liked uh, like the voice. But honestly, I don't tend to listen to my audio books because no matter how good the reader is, they don't read it quite the way I would. Mm, and you don't want to? Do you know, I, I audition to <laughs> get the job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Next time, you better pull some strings. <laughs> Okay, for listeners who have not read The River We Remember, can you please tell them about this book? Sure. The River We Remember is set in the summer of 1958. It takes place in southern Minnesota in an area I call Black Earth County. Uh, It opens on Memorial Day, 1958, when the county's leading citizen, a man named Jimmy Quinn, is found floating in the Alabaster River, which runs through town, dead from a shotgun blast and nearly naked. Zibby, this is truly a mystery because the question at the heart of the story is who killed Jimmy Quinn, but that's not really what it's about. That's true. I like that pitch, by the way. Very well done. (laughs) Leaves some intrigue and all of that. I feel like the setting is as much a character as anybody else in this book. Tell me about the landscape, how you evoke the sense of imagery, and just how immersive you make it, because I feel like we are all sort of trotting along as we go through the story. Yeah, I write profoundly out of a sense of place, as do most of the writers whose work I admire. I am not native to Minnesota. I didn't move here until I was uh, in my uh, very early 30s, so my wife could go to the University of Minnesota Law School. And before that, I was a nomad kid. I lived all over the place, and I never really had anywhere that you know I called or thought of as home. But I swear to you, the minute I set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I fell madly in love with this place. And so every time I sit down to write a story set here, whether it's up north in my New York Times bestselling Gorko Connor mystery series (laughs) in southern Minnesota, where all my standalones have been set. It is, in a way, a valentine to this adopted homeland of mine. I did, in fact, spend a number of years growing up in the Midwest when I was a kid. My adolescence was spent there. So my heart really is invested in that sense of place because it's so important to me. And I, you know, I approach place in the way when I used to teach creative writing, I always told my students, uh, you should create sense of place in the same way that you create character, because place has all of the characteristics that we would think of when we're establishing character. It has a voice, it has a face. You know, if you've been in the Midwest, you know, it has a a particular smell. (laughs) It has a, a culture to it. And so I create my place in the way I I create all of the important characters of my stories, because I think place is one of the most important characters in a story. 
Very true. Who are some of those authors you mentioned that in the authors you admire place is, has an equal role? Uh, you know, in, in the mystery genre, I might cite Louise Penny, uh, her Three Pines in Canada, um, C.J. Box or Craig Johnson in uh, in Wyoming. Certainly James Lee Burke, his series, his Dave Robichaux series, which is set in uh, the New Orleans area. Um, so in, in terms of the genre, you've got a few there, but certainly there are fine writers outside our genre. We think of them as literary authors <laughs> who have a profound sense of place. You know, my favorite novel of all time is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and the sense of place that Harper Lee establishes there is is just profound. I think we we all should study that novel uh, for lessons in how to create that profound sense of time and place. I mean, hers was also set in an earlier time, mine is set in 1958, which <laughs> which causes my novel to be called an historical novel, which always tickles me because I was alive then. <laughs> I don't think of myself as an historical figure, not yet anyway. <laughs> That's literally for my publishing company. We don't, we don't, published historical fiction and I use my birth I'm I was born in 1976 I'm like anything after that is not <laughs> historical fiction <laughs> no it's too depressing oh my goodness oh my gosh um so if I were a student of yours in your creative writing class and you've sold me on the idea that place is just as important what would how do you do it like what are like two things to keep in mind when you're really creating a great sense of place. Well, I, I used to tell my students, the first thing you don't do is give uh, your reader a travel log. There's nothing that's going to yep. slow, uh, slow a story down, then detail after detail after detail of sense of place. So typically, I would encourage them to find what is specific that can give a larger sense of the place and maybe unique, something that they're not going to see somewhere else. And then slowly across the course of your work, you give them more additional uh, details. So you build place as you build character over time and patiently. Interesting. So I was drawn to the scene in particular where Jimmy's family is told that he's not coming back. And he, the way that they respond to the loss and this, the children and the wife and how even though they thought maybe he was up to no good, this is for, for good. Tell me about how you recreate that sense of timing and the emotion that it evokes in the moment. Because a lot of people have been in that moment. Well, you know, you... When you write a mystery, part of the art is misdirection. And so while you are trying to give important information, you're also trying to give clues in a way that the reader is not necessarily going to pick up on immediately. When I wrote the scene in which Sheriff Brody Dern delivers the news of uh, Jimmy Quinn's death, his family reacts in the way many families would react with sort of this stunned you can't quite comprehend the reality of it quite yet. One of the, you know, his son responds in a very different way from the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. There's a great deal of resentment uh, on his part. The others, as Brody Dern reflects on it later, understands, and he has delivered many forms of bad news to families. He understands that grief, if it's going to come, can take a while and can take unusual forms. So, um, so that's how I c- constructed that particular scene with all of that in mind. <laughs> Have you received bad news? Did you draw on any of your own on those moments where you had trouble processing what you know from what you feel or all of that? 
You know, Zabiaye have never received that kind of bad news. But I think one of the reasons I'm a storyteller, and those of us who are storytellers, are, are practitioners of our art, is that for whatever reason, we possess the ability to sink ourselves deeply into the imagining experiences, events that we have not been a part of or mm-hmm. had ourselves, and find the words to create them in a realistic way on the page. I think, you know, if you're if you're really a storyteller, I think you so, sink yourself so deeply into the imagining of things that you go maybe a little deeper than conscious thought. And I think you touch the universals. And when you come up from these places, you bring insights that are, you know, you can just sit back and say, I have no idea where that came from. Thank you, Lord. Interesting. I know it is magic what our subconscious can do. Boy, howdy. <laughs> when you started writing this book, what was the initial spark? Where did you start? What, what made you want to write it? What was the piece of it that appealed to you? Well, on my elevator version, I I said that that's not what the book is really about. Here's what the book is really about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the early 1940s, my father graduated from high school, enlisted in the military service, and headed over to Europe to fight in World War II. He was just a kid. He was like 18 years old. He came back years later, a man deeply wounded in body and in spirit by what the war had done to him. I recognize now that he was probably suffering from PTSD, but, you know, they didn't talk about that back then. Or if they made reference to the, that, that at all, you know, they caused it shell shock, called it shell shock or battle fatigue. And when I was a kid, you know, like all kids, I pestered my dad for war stories. Did you kill any Germans, dad? And he absolutely refused to talk about it. And he was, you know, he was very like the the fathers of my friends, guys who, like my dad, had gone away to fight in World War II or the Korean War. And they all went away boys, you know. Some of them weren't even old enough to shave yet. And they came back men uh, wounded deeply by the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And I've wondered all my life, how could anyone heal from that kind of wounding? What about the people they left behind, their wives, their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, people who I'm sure were praying for them desperately while they were off fighting, and maybe who in the end lost them on the battlefield. How did they heal from their wounds? How did anybody find a way to heal? And that's really what the river we remember is about. Hmm. That's beautiful. What gets you out of bed in the morning to keep writing? Like, what is it about it that is just so appealing to you? You know, I have always been a storyteller as far back as I can remember. And I began over 40 years ago, a regime that I follow to this day. I get up at six o'clock every morning, seven days a week. And back in the old days, before the pandemic made a shelter in place, I would go to a coffee shop and spend the first two or three hours of the day writing. I had, during the pandemic, I had to exchange my kitchen counter for the coffee shop, uh, but I still write every morning uh, for two or three hours. And just the, just the idea of doing what I love most First thing in the day just pops me right out of bed, particularly if I'm at work on a project that just has captured my heart in a, in a profound way. And that's usually the way it is. I typically don't write something that I can't invest my heart in. And that was that has certainly been true of my standalones, all of those novels that I've set in southern Minnesota. Interesting. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. What is something that someone who hasn't been to Southern Minnesota should know about it? You know, most of the country, so much of the country ignores the Midwest, the heartland, you know, where the great flyover and people on the, you know, the sophisticated people on the East Coast and the sophisticated people on the (laughs) West Coast. They really have no idea of what they're missing. The heartland is such a beautiful place. Uh, It has an agrarian beauty. It has uh, beautiful little river valleys. Um, If you drive through in the spring and the the crops are just coming up and the fields are these beautiful rows of green sprouts, or you come through during the summer and you see the corn, you know, knee high by the 4th of July, or you drive through in the fall at harvest time and you see those big combines out there late into the night harvesting the corn or the, the wheat or the soybeans or whatever they're harvesting. It's just stunningly beautiful, particularly in the fall when we have so much color here. And so I try to, uh, you, you can tell, I hope, that my heart is in the heartland. And uh, and I try to give that that love to readers. I try to, when I write novels set here in Minnesota, I try to make them a valentine to this adopted home of mine. That's lovely. Who do you miss writing about the most? Which character? In the river, we remember, I loved Connie Graff. He was such a you know, he was such a citizen of, of his time, guy who has lots of wisdom, has lots of guilt for his own reasons, has just this huge embracing heart. And I loved creating him as a character. I loved spending time with him. The other character that I really appreciated a lot was Scott Madison, a kid who's trying to understand what it is to be a man, particularly in the in the post-World War II, post-Korean War era, when we were, you know, looked at as a victorious nation and we had heroes abounding, you know, the Audie, Audie Murphy um, to hell and back kind of a thing. 
Scott's really struggling to figure out what it is to be a man. And those of us particularly who grew up in that period really understand that, I think, because for us, so much of manhood seemed to be linked to your ability to be a warrior. Mm. Uh, And so Scott's really struggling with that. And I so identified and loved that kid. How did you come to terms with, I mean, I, I imagine your relationship with your father, if he's closed off to talking about war, might have closed off a whole section of him to you and the emotional connection, perhaps? What was that relationship like? Yeah, that was absolutely true. But I think that was true of so many men of my father's generation. These are guys who are typically unemotional. You know, they'll talk sports with you. Um, they'll teach you how to ride a bike, throw a football, hit a hit a baseball. But when it comes to talking about feelings, they're just not comfortable with that. Later on in his life, my father was much better at it. But when I was growing up, that wasn't him. He was a he was a loving father, wonderful father. But we didn't talk heart to heart stuff. And have you done things differently yourself? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I I think you would have to talk to my children to find <laughs> if that is in fact true that I have um, I have opened my heart to them. I hope I have. <laughs> they always say we do everything in opposite, you know, it's either in reaction to and we do the opposite or we do the same, but it's it's hard to just make up the rules of parenting. And it comes from somewhere, right? Some response to what we Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the truth is in the end, we don't really have an idea of what our children think of us as parents until they are parents themselves and they begin to share, oh, now I get it. I understand. Oh, I yeah. see what you were we're ha- I see what you had to deal with when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, so true, so true. Oh my goodness. In terms of sort of plotting out your novel and figuring out when to tell the reader what, and do you outline, like, what is your process of putting these books together? You know, if I write, I, I follow two different processes, depending upon the kind of story that I'm going to be writing. If I'm writing a story in my Corp O'Connor series, those are all essentially mysteries. And a mystery is a very tightly woven fabric of storytelling. Everything depends so significantly on everything else. And I think that the success of a mystery depends largely on the timing of the reveals. Mm-hmm. When do you get the reader the clues that are going to be necessary to solving the mystery at the heart of the story? So when I write a story in my Cork O'Connor series, I think that story through as completely as I can before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. At the end of that, that long process, It can take weeks or sometimes months. I know how the story begins. I know how it ends. I know who did what to whom and why. I know the themes that I want to weave through the story. But with my standalones, Ordinary Grace, This Tender Land, and Now the River We Remember, I wanted a different process. Uh, You know, a, a mystery is an intellectual construct. You create a puzzle in your head, and you're working like crazy to make sure all the pieces fit seamlessly together. My standalones didn't come from my head, they came from my heart. And so I wanted a process that would help the reader feel like I was telling you this story straight from my own heart. So going into the writing of these novels, these standalones, I've only known a few elements that I was going to include in the story. And then I let the story reveal itself to me as I was writing it, let the characters come to me, reveal themselves to me. And uh, that that creative process, I, I got to tell you, Zibi, is just extraordinary. It's like nothing nothing I've ever experienced before. But I would never approach a Cork O'Connor novel that way. Interesting. How do you keep all of these going? Like, do you ever get tired of it? And how do you feel also about like, how do you feel about 
having to continue to do book publicity and talk to people like me after writing so many books. Do you get tired of this or do you like it? And I don't mean me specifically, but going on tour, like when you have to market all of your books, do you get tired of that? Or are there parts of it that you absolutely love or parts of it you like less? I'm curious. Yeah. You know, the cold splash of reality that every published author is hit with that first book is the realization that probably your publisher is not going to do a lot (laughs) to help get that book into the hands of readers. That's going to be on your shoulders. So in addition then to being a writer, you have to become a promoter. And some people are better at it than others. Very early on, one of the primary forms for me a promotion were the more personal appearances with my advance on my very first novel because my publisher didn't put together a tour I put a lot of money into touring across the country myself and meeting booksellers everywhere and those relationships that I established with that very first book are still important to me today so I still think for me the best and most enjoyable form of promotion is are the personal appearances that I make. For the river, we remember I have somewhere between 45 and 50 events that I'm doing. I'm about halfway finished with us. <laughs> we have quite a few ahead of me. But then you've got to be on social media. And that maybe is the most difficult part for me. I have a Facebook page and Twitter and Instagram, and I have to come up with content to put out there for readers so they don't forget who I am. And that that's a little onerous at times and, and can sometimes be intrusive. Yeah. Don't you get tired? You don't get tired? You seem to have boundless energy. You you caught me on a good morning. <laughs> <laughs> Just got back from a very long swing uh, in the south and in the southeast for the river we remember. Uh, So I was tired yesterday. I'm feeling pretty, I just came back from a bike ride and nothing energizes me like a bike ride, but I have a lot still going ahead. I know that I will be very tired by the end of everything. And I will be saying to myself, never again. And then the book that will come out next year will come out and I'll probably be doing the same thing. And what is the book coming out next year? It will be the next book in my Cork O'Connor series, number 20 in my Cork O'Connor series, a novel called Spirit Crossing. And then do you, are you going to do a standalone after the next one? Is Are you going to keep alternating? Yes. Okay. Not necessarily keep alternating, but there's been, I you know, I have contractual obligations I have to meet in my Cork O'Connor series. The manuscript of the book that will be coming out next year is the first of two books that I'm under contract to write for the series. But before I embark on that next Cork O'Connor novel. I have a standalone that has just been pounding at the door, begging to be written for some time now. So I'll probably spend a couple of years on that manuscript. How long did The River We Remember take? Well, the initial writing of it took two years. Then I set it aside for six years. And then I came back to it and spent another year and a half on it. Why did you set it aside? It wasn't good enough. You know, my publisher had paid me an enormous amount for, for that manuscript. But uh, shortly before deadline, I let them know there is no way I know how to tell this story correctly right now. And I'm not going to give you something that is, in my opinion, failed simply because I need to meet contract. They were really very understanding. And uh, but they told me, you know, you still owe us a, a, a companion novel to Ordinary Grace, a standalone novel. So what I gave them instead, Zibby, was a novel called This Tender Land, which ended up spending six months on the New York Times bestseller list. So I, th- I think all in all, it was a good decision. So they, they were OK with it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, good for you for trusting your instincts and all of that. I mean, it would have been so easy just to hand it in. You know, I. 
again, when I used to teach creative writing, I would tell my students, you know, don't don't write what what the industry says you should be writing, what your agent says you should be writing, what you think your publisher wants, what you think readers want. Write what's in your heart. Write what your heart tells you to write. And uh, and I think in, in the long run, you'll be much happier with what you do and with yourself. You know, the, the river we remember when I was writing it, I just hadn't heard the voice of that story really speak to me in, in a way that I could do justice to it. But I because I had a contractual obligation to meet, I really I worked on it. And, and the whole time I felt like I was pushing against the river. And as a result, you know, I just botched that early attempt. Hmm. People think, though. By the time you're as successful as you, you can't botch books. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't happen. But it does. It's, it's... You know, if you stop challenging yourself as a writer, you're just going to, readers are going to feel that and they'll stop reading you. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I know you've already given a lot of advice, but what's one parting piece of advice for aspiring authors? This is the, the best piece of, I have two pieces of advice to give to aspiring writers. The first is this. Write because it's what you love to do, not because you think it's going to make you rich and famous. And the second is this, marry somebody with a good job. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no one has ever given me that advice before. <laughs> Ken, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. Congratulations on the river we remember. And thank you. I feel like I just took a little trip to the Midwest. So I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you, I've just had a delightful time. Thank you very much. Oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> All right. I'll tell, I'll tell my mom you said hello. She's from Ohio, by the way. So I feel like okay, okay. it's a Midwest points for that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 